I'm Dr. Max Pemberton, a doctor and Daily Mail columnist, and this is part one of a special three-part podcast for Mail Plus Health, where I speak to Dr. Adrian Morris, principal allergist at the Surrey Allergy Clinic in Guildford and London, and honorary NHS consultant at the Allergy Clinic at the Royal Brompton Hospital. Adrian, thank you so much for, for joining us. So could you just start maybe just explaining what, what, is, what is an allergist? What kind of area of medicine does that fall under? Hi, it's a general area of uh, covers all sorts of things. So it's quite a wide range of, of, of areas. Uh, asthma could be due to allergies. Obviously, food allergies are due to allergies. Uh, hay fever, eczema, urticaria hives, um, a whole wide range of areas and a lot of testing is involved because you need to test to find the cause of most allergies. It may not be immediately apparent. So it's a branch, it's a recognised branch of general medicine then. So you, you, you train as a hospital doctor and then you specialise further in allergy, is that right? Yes, usually in clinical immunology. That's a science of understanding the immune system, uh, how our immune system works, the different cells that are involved and the chemicals that they release and, and how we can intervene and, and try and change all of that. I do remember doing immunology at medical school and I remember it being incredibly, unbelievably complicated. So, so I'm in awe of you for having specialised in that subject. It's very difficult. <laughs> um, but obviously it's something, well, particularly allergy is something that affects lots and lots of people. And actually I've been quite sort of surprised by how many listeners um, have sort of, you know, sent in questions. We've, you know, been really inundated. It's obviously something that affects lots of people's lives. And perhaps, dare I say, it's something that maybe general, general medics um, sort of don't maybe always understand fully or kind of always have a grasp on. So yeah, so it's, 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 we sort of really touched a nerve, I think, with a lot of the listeners. In fact, so I suppose, well, the first question we've had sort of maybe brings all that in. But a more general question, why do you think so many people these days suffer from allergies? Is it because we're all cleaner and live in more sanitary environments than generations before us? Or is there something else happening? That's a kind of really interesting question. It's sort of the sort of thing you, you, you read about quite a lot in newspapers and stuff, this sort of debate. So, so can, you, can you explain that to us? Yeah, um, about 30% of the population now have some form of established allergy, and that may be hay fever, it may be a food allergy, nuts, fish, it may be asthma, it may be eczema, and it's getting more and more common. I'm quite an older chap now, I'm in my 60s, and as a young doctor, I didn't know of anyone who had a nuts allergy. Um, it was unheard of, and it's something that's really come on in the last 40 years or so. I think the first Brazil nut allergy was diagnosed in the 1980s and peanuts about 10 years before that. So it's something that's grown and exponentially. You go into most schools now and you find tons of children have got nuts and food allergies. And so there's been a lot of study into this and genetics play a big role. So if your parents have allergies, uh, you're far more likely to have allergies than someone whose parents don't have allergies. And the other thing, is the environment you brought up in. There's this thing called the hygiene hypothesis. And children these days are brought up in environments that are too clean. They need bugs and dirt and they need to scurry around in the outside and, 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 and pick up bugs from other children. And that primes the immune system to fight those germs off. And if they don't have any of that, the immune system becomes a bit mischievous and starts to find things that aren't actually an issue to take issue with. So like dust mites and cat danders and uh, peanuts and 
uh, apples and things like that. So th there's, there's a whole consternation of different factors. And then pollution may play a role in that it primes the allergen to make it more allergenic. So people who live in the city are more likely to have worse hay fever than people who live in the countryside because diesel exhaust particulate makes the pollen more allergenic. So it's all about the allergen and your genetic predisposition. So there's a, there's a combination of different factors at here. Yeah. But it is correct then to say that actually there are more allergies than there were, say, a generation ago. Because certainly that's how I feel, that it feels yeah. like it's like that. You know, I remember when I was at school 30-odd years ago, I didn't think there was anyone particularly with allergies. Whereas now, yeah. as you see, you go in now and every single <laughs> class has got at least several kids where it's, you know, yeah. they've got, you know it's a really serious allergy. So, yeah. so it sounds like there's a part of its pollution, but also part of it, if you're pre genetically predisposed, then there's also part of it is just this, the environment we now live in. So yeah. is it right, therefore, that if you're kind of bringing up kids to sort of let them roll around in the dirt, is that okay? That's not bad parenting. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, let the cat sleep in the cots, let the dog go and lick the child, let uh, the child have foods early. We advise pregnant women and breastfeeding mothers not to introduce foods early into the child diet if they were from an allergy-prone family. So if you had asthma and hay fever, you advised to withhold allergens, egg, nuts, and fish, and all sorts of things from the child's diet as you're weaning it. And now we realize that was actually the worst thing we could have suggested because you need to be exposed to these allergens in the first six months of your life to switch off the allergy. If you don't, the child then picks up the allergen through the skin. And most children with severe allergies will actually become sensitized through their skin, being handled by their parents who've just eaten peanut or something like that. So you actually want to introduce allergens early, not let the skin become the, the source of their allergy introduction. And they've done some amazing studies. They've looked in children's beds where there are no dogs or cats or peanuts in the house. And they've actually sort of hoovered the bed and then analyzed it. And they found dog dander and cat danders and peanut extract in the child's bed, even though the parents think there's nothing in the house. So these things creep into the bedding and onto the skin and then cause allergic sensitization. So it sounds like if you're particularly if you're from a, a kind of family where where you're prone to allergies, actually it's really really important if you have a child, obviously under medical guidance, to make sure that you're introducing as much of those kind of yeah. things that could potentially later on in life produce an allergy, but introduce them early on so the body almost gets used to it. Is that right? That's right. The earlier you introduce it, the quicker you'll switch it off. But the later you introduce it, the more likely it's going to become a permanent allergy. It, it sounds sort of almost counterintuitive, but it seems like that's yeah. what your kind of evidence yeah. is suggesting. Interesting. So the second question, can you grow out of allergies? My baby granddaughter has just been diagnosed with asthma and severe allergies to peanuts, milk and eggs. What could have caused this? Her mother was a healthy baby with no allergies. Could it have been something during pregnancy? I'm so worried as I feel the peanut allergy in particular could ruin her life, if not worse. Well, that's absolutely true. Um, allergies can be outgrown. I would say on average with food allergies, about 25% of children with a food, an established food allergy will outgrow it by the sort of age of 10 or so. And the less allergic you are, the more likely you outgrow it. So if you've got a really bad peanut allergy with anaphylaxis, there's a good chance you won't outgrow it. So, so, so anaphylaxis, sorry to interrupt, so anaphylaxis, could you just explain briefly what that is for a moment? Oh, yeah. 
go. Anaphylaxis is where you have a generalized catastrophic reaction uh, or allergic reaction. So it involves the whole body. So some people who are allergic to peanuts, if they bite into a peanut, they'll get itching in their mouth, their throat will start to feel constricted, they'll have difficulty breathing, they'll come up in a generalized rash all over. They'll feel lightheaded and pass out and may actually stop breathing and, and die. So those are the ones you have to have the EpiPens. So that's that's the one with the, you know, the really serious kind of yeah. reaction. Yeah. So sorry, so you were saying, so, so with, with regard to anaphylaxis, you were saying? So the ones who have the minor allergy, so if you've got just some oral itching or you have a minor peanut allergy, there's a good chance you'll outgrow it. But if it's very severe and you've had anaphylactic shock, then it's probably not going to be outgrown. The other part of my question was what, what could have caused this? I suppose we've sort of almost touched upon this, but it's interesting that her mother was a healthy baby with no allergies. Why has that sort of suddenly now come on for this person? And the person's asking, is it something that happened during pregnancy? People forget and they, they think allergy is only some reaction to food. But if we delve down, that mother probably has had asthma. She's probably got hay fever. So she's probably got an allergic background and genetic pool there that she's passed on to the child. And very often the children will have food allergies. They'll outgrow them, develop eczema. They'll outgrow that. Then they get the hay fever. Then they get the asthma. And so it goes. So they might actually, without sort of realizing it, they might actually have been sort of that genetic propensity yeah. anyway, and it's just not been particularly obvious, or people kind of forget about it. Because I suppose yeah. that's the thing, isn't it? It's you know, 40 years ago plus. Um, so it's easy to kind of forget things like that. So the next question is, is there a breed of dog that's less likely to trigger asthma attacks? I've had friends say that poodles and labradoodles are often less allergenic, but I'm, I'm worried about getting a dog. And then my husband who has asthma, reacting to it? That's quite, quite a dilemma. So what would you suggest? That's a great question because all dogs release a allergen in their skin called uh, Carn F1, which is an allergen that is secreted in varying degrees. So some dogs will secrete more of the allergen in their skin and gets onto their fur and then onto the, uh, into the environment and others less. And, and so the Labradoodles and the Bichon Freezers are dogs that secrete less of the allergen. So they are relatively hyperallergenic. But if you're very allergic to dogs, you're going to react to any dog in the environment. Oh, uh, I always thought then that it was the hair that people were No, no. The allergen sticks to the hair, but the allergen is actually a, a dandan, epithelial allergen. In cats, it's in their saliva, and in male dogs, it's sometimes in their urine. So you've got people who might be allergic to male dogs only. There's Carn F5, that's the allergen in the urine. So male dogs, you might be allergic to, but you can have a female dog. So it's very important to be tested, and you can do components now where you measure uh, each part of the allergen that you're allergic to and give a better idea of treatment. That's interesting. So maybe even if you're allergic to dogs, it might be specifically the male dogs that you're allergic yeah, to. You yeah, might be able to to like that, exactly like that. So, so having dogs just with very sort of tight um, fur or that don't lose their, their hair, um, actually that's not going to particularly make much difference. No, I think the, the, the dogs like retrievers and Labradors have got long, fine hair and the allergen is dropped off it more easily. Um, and the dogs with tighter hair, like the little terriers, they secrete less of the allergen and also it doesn't get shed from their hairs easily, which brings me on to an interesting thing because there's a spray you can buy and you spray it onto the dog and it, the allergen then sticks to the dog's hair more effectively and it doesn't shed it as much. So people do tolerate 
dogs, if they're allergic, if they spray them with this product, which I shouldn't mention on the podcast because it's advertising, but you can look it up. <laughs> it's, it's a bit like a sort of hairspray for dogs. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and it's non-toxic. It doesn't affect the dog or upset the dog at all. Brilliant. Um, now this actually, this is quite close to my heart because this, this has happened to me. So why have I only started getting hay fever aged 40? And what really can help it? It drove me mad this summer. Which antihistamines do you think are best? So I suppose that's two questions really. Yeah, Firstly, yeah. it's about why, why would hay fever suddenly come on? And then secondly, it's about kind of how would you treat it? Now this has actually happened to me, I'd say sort of in my mid thirties, suddenly out of nowhere, suddenly started getting hay fever. I'm kind of refusing to believe I've got hay fever, but I do have to take antihistamines. <laughs> it would be odd to get hay fever in your forties for the first time. So hay fever starts in the teenage years when you're doing A-levels and GCSEs and that, and then you're affected badly during that time of the year when you're meant to be studying. And then it progresses into the 20s. It gets worse in the 20s and then sort of stabilizes along until you're about 40. So if you get it for the first time at the age of 40, either you didn't notice that you had hay fever earlier or you've moved to a place where you're more exposed to pollen or pollution, because this whole pollution thing comes into it. So diesel particles bind the pollen grains and they drive them deeper into the airways and cause a great allergic response. So the combination of pollen and diesel isn't great. So that may be that you move to the city, you work in the city, and the pollen and the diesel then makes your uh, hay fever much worse than it was when you were in your teens. And in your teens, you didn't worry too much about it because you're tearing around doing all sorts of other things. But it's usually a teenage onset thing, more in males, um, progresses into the 20s and then improves later. And interestingly, because I, um, I think it might be I've moved somewhere because when I used to live, um, not very far from here, but I used to live um, low on the ground floor um, yes. and I would, th that was when it started. Um, and now I live on the 37th floor of a block yeah. of that, and now I don't get hay fever until I go downstairs <laughs> and then it comes on. So That's I think something true. downstairs... <laughs> So that's absolutely true, your observation, because what happens is that the pollen is sitting on the grass at ground level. During the course of the morning, the heat of the sun then lifts it. It lifts up into the air, high up into the atmosphere, and then comes back down about six in the evening. So if you're on the 36th floor, you'll probably get hay fever about two in the afternoon. If you're on the ground floor, you're going to get it at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And so the second part of that question then was about sort of antihistamines and what, what, would, you, what would you recommend? Yeah, there, there, there are new antihistamines that are now available in the market. The older ones that things uh, that were like Pyroton and that were, are slightly sedating because they cross into the brain. So you can get lethargy and tiredness and that. But the newer antihistamines, the second generation ones, have a 24-hour duration and they're non-sedating and they're very well tolerated. Things like levocetirazine and desloratadine are very good, and there's fexofenadine. All of these are generally available, usually need a prescription and uh, very safe and once a day preparation. So you could take your antihistamine in the morning before you go off to work or school and it's gonna last you for the day and, and cause uh, minimal side effects. So they're well tolerated. And so should that be enough then, really, for people who've got hay fever? Should, should those tablets roughly pretty much knock it on the head? No, on the head? no, because you know, it depends how allergic you are. So if you're the average hay fever sufferer, one antihistamine tablet taken every day would do the trick. 
if you've got a really high degree of allergy to grass pollen, you're probably going to need a nasal spray as well. One of these low grade, non-absorbed nasal steroid sprays, um, such as beclomethazone and fluticasone. And then you might need eye drops as well, antihistamine eye drops, because your eyes are predominantly affected. So that may be an, an additional thing you would take. And then there's this wonderful treatment called immunotherapy, which does make a huge impact on particularly hay fever, where you become desensitized to the pollen by taking small amounts of pollen on a daily basis. We used to give it by injection. It was called an injection immunotherapy, but now there's a sublingual immunotherapy, which is called SLIT. And that you start before the pollen season, you take it through the season, and you usually get benefit in the first year. And they say you should take it for three consecutive years to get full long-term cure of the hay fever. And I think it's about 70% effective. So it, it really is, uh, makes a huge impact on quality of life. So, so does that work then by desensitizing, making the immune system less sensitive over a long, long period of time? Is that right? It, it, it leads to tolerance. So if you're given something you're allergic to in small amounts over time and you slowly increase the dose, your immune system then starts to recognize it as being okay and normal and, and you develop tolerance. Because that's also, you can do that with peanut now. They, they, they started doing desensitization programs to peanut. Because if you're allergic to something, then wouldn't you then Absolutely. create a really serious... It should never be done in the home environment. It should be done in hospital and in a, in a very controlled environment. But the, the reason I mention that is the children then become desensitized to peanut and they have to continue eating peanuts for the rest of their life. Because as soon as they stop eating peanuts, they will lose that tolerance and the allergy will come back. So it's wow. <laughs> going to be avoiding peanuts and then having yeah. to have them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then and just to explain to so antihistamines, because I think yeah. it's a bit, sometimes a bit of confusion around those. So what, what is this histamine thing? Can you just brief, very briefly explain what that is? Yeah, histamine is the chemical mediator of allergy. So it's the thing our body releases when it's exposed. So you get exposed to pollen and in the nose, there are little cells called mast cells that release histamine in response to that allergen because they become primed and they know that that allergen is foreign and they release histamine. And that chemical histamine makes you sneeze, itch, your nose gets watery and runny and swollen and congested. And that's what histamine does. So antihistamines are drugs that actually block the effect of histamine. So the mast cells release their histamine, but it can't do anything because the antihistamines blocking the receptors on all of those membranes in your nose, in your blood vessels. And, uh, and yeah, it sounds very technical, but it's actually a very safe preparation and, and a good way to treat these things. That's interesting. So the antihistamines really are just dealing with the symptoms. They're yes. not dealing with the underlying thing. The, the, no. the mast cells are still responding to the, to the, the, the allergen. Um, yeah. It's just that the histamine they release just isn't having an effect on you. Whereas that's, that's right. different to the immunotherapy where actually you're retraining the immune system. Is that right? Yeah. Absolutely correct. Sometimes I wonder if I am suffering from hay fever or just exposure to pollution or whether pollution exacerbates my symptoms. I'm sure I heard it called pollution yeah. somewhere. Is that right? I asked if I find my symptoms definitely get worse when I have to commute into work into central London. What do you think? So, so I mean, we kind of just started touching upon that, that crossover between hay yeah. fever and pollution. 
No, but we've already answered that because that's why in London you seem to have worse hay fever than in the countryside because of the old diesel exhaust particulate comes back into the equation again. So this pollution binds with the pollen and makes it more allergy provoking. So that's why the city slickers have worse hay fever than someone who's living in the countryside. You think they'd be much worse because they're sitting in the grasslands. Um, but that, that would explain why this person's hay fever's got worse since working in central London. And the pollination, the combination of pollen and pollution, pollination is the factor there. Right, interesting. So yeah, that is counterintuitive because you imagine sort of in fields, sort of skipping around fields, you'd have, <laughs> yeah. you'd have you know, there'd be loads of like you know, pollen everywhere and stuff like that. But actually it's that combination then of the, of the pollution with, yeah. with things like the pollen and stuff that actually makes it extra sort of reactive to your body. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's all we've got time for today, I'm afraid, but come back next week for part two. In the meantime, if you want more from Adrian, you can look at allergy-clinic.co.uk and you can find us on Spotify, Apple and Google. And whilst you're there, please leave us a review and don't forget to sign up for the Daily Mail Plus briefings at mailplus.co.uk.